0: Good evening, and uh, welcome again to the uh, public lecture series at Princeton University for the 2004-2005 year, and we're very pleased to have our speaker uh, for three uh, evenings this week to give us um, uh, lectures on the return to greatness. And uh, I just discovered, so I have to reveal this to the audience, we just discovered that we went to the same high school um, in Philadelphia many years ago. Um, In any case, tonight our speaker will be introduced, Alan Wolf, will be introduced by Steve Macedo who is the um, uh, director of the Center for Human Values and actually when he first came to Princeton he was the director of Princeton's program in in law and uh, public affairs and Steve is going to do the introductory remarks tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Lee. Uh, Our speaker is one of America's best-known public intellectuals, but he's also an eminent political scientist and sociologist whose work is influential in the academy as well as in public life. Uh, Alan Wolf's voluminous writings are characterized by great clarity and relevance. They have important things to say about the most fundamental questions in public life. While he's a progressive in his politics, Alan has none of the intellectual's dismissiveness with respect to the moral views of ordinary people. To the contrary, in many of his recent writings, he takes seriously and regards with great sympathy the moral and religious views and struggles of ordinary Americans, which he saves from the caricatures of both left and right and presents with great subtlety and, and illumination. In One Nation After All, in 1998, Wolf argued that talk of a culture war was greatly exaggerated, and largely the work of intellectuals. Most Americans, he argued, are not deeply divided over moral issues. Someone may be re-examining that question in light of the recent election. In Moral Freedom, the Search for Virtue in a World of Choice, 2001, he focuses on traditional virtues of loyalty, honesty, self-restraint, and forgiveness, and argues that these virtues are alive and well in America even though they no longer resemble the ideals espoused by previous generations. Americans of all stripes, he argues, from the most radical to the most traditional, want to lead a good life, but they're determined to decide for for themselves what a good life means. And in his most recent book, The Transformation of American Religion, 2003, uh, Allen uses ethnographic data to argue that American religion has been shaped by American culture, more than the other way around. Now, These are not simple celebrations of public opinion by no means, but they do urge the view that middle-class morality should not be dismissed or caricatured, uh, but rather should be taken seriously and should be investigated by academics uh, and, 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 uh, and the rest of us uh, with the seriousness that they deserve. Both One Nation After All and Moral Freedom were selected by the New York Times as notable books of the year. In the wake of an election in which moral values and religious faith have played a critical role in the defeat of a progressive candidate, at least arguably, I suspect that Alan Wolfe is one of the most important voices to whom both liberals and indeed all Americans should pay heed. Alan's other books include uh, several volumes of politically engaged scholarship in the early 1970s uh, with titles such as The Seamy Side of Democracy, Repression in America, uh, and in addition, uh, subsequently, uh, books with titles like The Limits of Legitimacy, Political Contradictions of Contemporary Capitalism in 1977, uh, America's Impasse, The Rise and Fall of the Politics of Growth in 1981, Who's Keeper, Social Science and Moral Obligation in 1989, and The Human Difference, Animals, Computers, and the Necessity of Social Science in 1993. And indeed, in addition to these and the volumes I mentioned earlier, Alan has published several edited collections, and uh, a recent a collection on school choice, the moral debate, uh, uh, as well as recent collections of essays, reviews, and occasional writings. Alan has published more articles, reviews, and essays that I could possibly name if I stood here all night. His topics range from capitalism to civil society, the welfare state, education, moral virtue, religion, and freedom. Uh, As uh, uh, Lee mentioned, uh, Allen attended public schools in the city city of Philadelphia. He graduated from Temple University and received his Ph.D. in political science from the University of Pennsylvania in 1967. He began his teaching career at the Douglas College campus of Rutgers University and held subsequent teaching positions in political science and sociology at the State University of New York, uh, Old Westbury, the City University of New York, uh, and uh, visiting positions at a number of universities in California, at Harvard and Denmark, uh, and elsewhere. For a few years in the early 90s, he was dean of the graduate faculty of political and social science and professor at the New School for Social Research. From 1993 to 1999, he was university professor at Boston University, and since 1999, he's been director of the Boise Center for Religion and Public Life and professor of political science at Boston College. A contributing editor of the New Republic and the Wilson Quarterly, Alan Wolfe writes often for these publications as well as for Commonweal, the New York Times, Harper's, the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, and other magazines and newspapers. Uh, He's been the recipient of grants from Russell Sage, the Templeton Foundation, and elsewhere, he's twice conducted programs under the auspices of the State Department to bring Muslim scholars to the United States to learn about the separation of church and state. I'm not sure there's any scholar in the social sciences or any intellectual whose range of interest is as broad, as relevant, and as timely as those of our speaker. But to speak tonight on the topic, America's Two Visions, the Good and the Great, it's my great pleasure to welcome Alan Wolfe.
2: Well, thank you both for the introduction to the introduction and the introduction. Uh, this is a, a, just a tremendous uh, honor for me to be invited to deliver these lectures, uh, and I want to thank uh, Fred Apple from Princeton University Press for initiating the whole process um, and uh, 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 all of my hosts here at the university. Uh, yes, it's true, I'm from Philadelphia, and uh, the very first time I ever left the city of Philadelphia, was to go to Princeton, New Jersey, uh, when I was a high school student. Um, And uh, uh, that was the first time in my life I met an anti-Semite. I distinctly recall. um, I probably never met anybody who wasn't Jewish in my life until that point. And then to suddenly turn around and find myself probably within 50 feet of here and someone's like a character out of Brideshead Revisited just sitting there and spouting off uh, put me um, perhaps in the mood for that since uh, I was reading the new Philip Roth novel on the train uh, coming here and uh, maybe that's on my mind but it's, uh, this time it's a much better uh, chance to come back to Princeton so thank you. Um, I, uh, th- 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 these thoughts are, are uh, really indebted to some conservative writers, actually, and I want to acknowledge my debt to them, to William Crystal and David Brooks uh, in particular. There are a few others as well, but I'll, I'll mention them. Uh, these are people who a few years ago began to talk about the idea of a, a national greatness, um, and they introduced this word greatness really back into our contemporary political uh, vocabulary. Uh, Crystal and Brooks and others uh, started this conversation when their favorite candidate for president was Senator John McCain of Arizona. And McCain, for them, embodied a kind of old-fashioned ideal about America um, that seemed to link up in their minds with people like Theodore Roosevelt um, and uh, uh, offered for at least these writers the sense that uh, perhaps America could be great once again. Uh, John McCain, uh, as we know, uh, didn't survive the 2000 primary in South Carolina against his opponent, whose name I believe was Karl Rove, uh, and um, uh, a certain approach to politics that involves spreading of nasty rumors and gossip. Uh, seems to have done him in, and so, unfortunately, he uh, uh, never became president and couldn't embody the Rooseveltian idea of American greatness. But uh, another Republican became president, George W. Bush, and before long, Brooks and uh, Crystal were saying that uh, Bush might conceivably uh, embody this uh, uh, ideal. Uh, I credit these writers because I think they did something very, very important. I think we should be talking about greatness. Uh, I don't think we should be ashamed of this idea. Uh, I think it would be good if we developed a sense of our society as a great society. Greatness, after all, in Lyndon Johnson's term, was once an idea that was associated with the left or liberal or progressive vision of the United States. And uh, these writers really started a conversation. They never finished it. Uh, They got very involved in uh, 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 supporting this or that candidate, uh, so I decided that I would at least try my hand at it uh, and uh, uh, reflect a little bit about what would it mean for the United States to be a great country. Um, and uh, I'll begin by offering a kind of a, a three-part definition of what I believe greatness would involve, that it would mean articulating some kind of idea or vision about what the United States should stand for. First, That secondly, it would lead to the creation of institutions uh, that could embody and make that vision real. In other words, if the vision is just a vision, but it doesn't have any concrete mechanism for transforming it into reality, uh, it wouldn't suffice. So you need both a vision and some sense of a national set of institutions that can embody that vision. And thirdly, some obligation or some responsibility to share that vision if one believes in it with the rest of the world. Uh, that these three items uh, uh, seem to me would go into a definition of what greatness would mean uh, for the United States. The vision itself, well, the two uh, ideas that we talk about most throughout the course of our history have been the ideas of liberty and equality, and they seem to me to be pretty good places to start. We've never had full agreement about what we mean uh, when we use those terms. Uh, We argue about whether liberty is best guaranteed by the free market, uh, or whether it's best guaranteed by some kind of government uh intervention in the free market but i think there has been a general commitment to the idea that for this particular society uh liberty is essential to the idea of greatness if we could only agree uh on what liberty might mean uh which or at least to have some kind of general agreement upon what it might mean i can't possibly offer the definitive uh, conclusion to a long discussion about what liberty would entail today, but it does seem to me that there is a fundamental ideal uh, that was uh, very, very much part of the American founding that emphasized notions about human autonomy, uh, emphasized notions about human beings being in charge of their fate as much as possible that would have to be part of the definition of American greatness. Uh, that uh, uh, if we were to achieve significant power through government in this country, but that power did not advance the cause of promoting individuals and their autonomy and their ability to be in charge of their own fate. It would not constitute uh, greatness in any way that uh, would make sense for us. So some conception of liberty seems to me to be essential, as well as some conception of equality. Uh, We've had long discussions throughout our history about liberty our discussions of equality have been much more recent. We didn't talk about equality for uh, a very, very long time in between announcing the goal in the Declaration of Independence, uh, but it wasn't really until the 20th century, uh, um, well, it wasn't really until the Civil War, rather, uh, and the Reconstruction Amendments that uh, a, uh, a fundamental discussion of what equality would mean for this country uh, uh, came about. Um, and that discussion, like our discussion about liberty, has all kinds of different kinds of conclusions. Some people these days say that a program like affirmative action is essential to achieve equality, and some people say that affirmative action is the exact opposite uh, uh, of the spirit of equality, uh, and we argue endlessly. But it does seem to me that if we look over the course of our history, there has been gradual movements in the direction of equality from the 18th century until the 21st uh that is reflected in the gradual spread of universal suffrage uh reflected in the uh uh transformation of a society that once at least part of our society once enslaved people uh to freeing them to uh, granting them the franchise to passing legislation such as the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to make that franchise more than just formal but to actually operationalize it um We have and will always have debates about what equality will mean in any particular circumstance, whether equality demands, for example, that we acknowledge the right of homosexuals to marry. is one of those debates that we're having at the present time. But nonetheless, I think it's very, very clear, given our values over the course uh, of American history, that if liberty at its very core means granting to people as much as we possibly can some sense of autonomy, that equality means that no one should be denied those rights on the basis of purely arbitrary criteria or criteria that can't be justified. Um, so we've had visions, and it seems to me that those visions are very much alive in our culture uh, and uh, constitute the material for uh, creating a sense of what it would mean for a society to uh, to realize them. But the realization of them, the second aspect that goes into any definition of American greatness is a much more controversial one, because uh, the whole notion of creating mechanisms of government that could embody these ideals through a nation, uh, through the creation of a nation state and national citizenship, has been enormously contested uh, throughout our history. We have uh, a political culture that has been very, very hesitant to acknowledge the idea of a nation, um, the idea of a nation came very, very slowly to us. Our founders, Jefferson and Madison, uh, in particular, were very ambivalent uh, about the idea of a nation and national citizenship. Perhaps the most nationalist of all of our founders was John Marshall, uh, who in his uh, various uh, Supreme Court decisions would say things like this. Uh, this is from Cohen's versus Virginia in 1821. Marshall said, we are one people whose national existence is defined by a constitution that is framed for ages to come. Um, and that idea, uh, uh, which he uh, did so much to embody in his various writings, um, was contested from the moment he said it, and of course would be contested uh, 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 throughout the history of the 19th uh, century, uh, uh, leading Marshall himself, before he died, to be very, very dubious about the idea of a single nation uh, being created uh, in, in the United States. Um, nonetheless, it, uh, it does seem to me that there has been a tradition in American political thought which has understood the necessity to have a strong conception of the nation to embody the ideals that would go into uh, the realization of being a great society. One sees this, of course, in Abraham Lincoln's majestic uh, rhetoric. Uh, the word nation is mentioned four times in the first three sentences of the Gettysburg Address. Um, uh, many people have pointed out that throughout the 19th century most people preferred the word union to the word nation. Uh, Lincoln was the first to really uh, 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 emphasize that we were more than a union, that we were a nation. Uh, the 14th, 15, uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to our Constitution embodied the idea of national citizenship. But it has always been a struggle. There has always been voices to say uh, that uh, we are something other than a nation, a collection of states, perhaps a collection of individuals. Uh, This is no nation. For example, uh, Senator James B. Beck of Kentucky said in 1875, which was the year in which uh, Congress passed, uh, up until that point, its most extensive uh, Civil Rights Act, a Civil Rights Act that would be declared unconstitutional uh, by the United States Supreme Court. And in the decision in which the United States Supreme Court declared the 1875 Civil Rights Act unconstitutional, the word nation was mentioned only once, uh, and that was in reference to France. Uh, So that if a nation is defined as a, uh, a society in which we strive for the idea of equal national citizenship for all those who compose it, This is an idea that came very, very late in our history. And when James Beck said in 1875 that we were no nation, he was probably correct. Uh, We did not really become a nation uh, uh, in even the most basic sense, um, I think, until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which uh, finally made it possible to say that we had uh, uh, the, that everybody who is eligible to vote had the right to vote and could therefore be a citizen uh, of, of the nation. If uh, the idea of, a, of, a, of an American nation has always been contested throughout our history, so has the idea that this nation should stand for something in the world and that its ideals should be uh, something that uh, ought to be shared with the world, and on occasion shared to the world with more than just persuasion, uh, uh, but with military force. Um, The uh, notion of embodying the nation as a force in the world has also been highly contested uh, throughout our history. Um, Various uh, people like Theodore Roosevelt uh, would embody the spirit of nationalism in that sense, uh, but every time we had a kind of burst of national energy in the international sphere, we would seem to retreat back into something else. Um, In his uh, really, really fascinating book, uh, um, Walter Russell Mead, who writes about different trends in uh, American foreign policy, identifies uh, a Jeffersonian strain, a Jacksonian strain, a Wilsonian strain, and a Hamiltonian strain in, in American foreign policy. And of all of them, only the Hamiltonian one uh, has been uh, 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 one that's willing to take on American burdens uh, throughout the world. Uh, the political scientist Samuel Huntington talks about the neo-Hamiltonians at the latter part of the 19th century, men like Alfred Thayer Mann, Elihu Root, and John Hay, uh, who embody this sense of, of representing a, a, a sense of American greatness to the world. Uh, they were pro-imperialists, um, um, called themselves imperialist, uh, Alfred Thermann said, I am frankly an imperialist in the sense that I believe that no nation, certainly no great nation, should henceforth maintain the policy of isolation, which fitted our early history, above all, should not, on that outlived plea, refuse to intervene in events uh, obviously thrust upon its conscience. Uh, In identifying these ideas of uh, a strong nation and a nation with a strong sense of responsibility to the world, uh, I am not uh, necessarily endorsing them all. Uh, There are flaws in all of the people who I've been discussing. Lincoln had his flaws, uh, certainly uh, with respect to his disregard for civil liberties. Marshall had his flaws. He was anything but a Democrat and was an arch-conservative in his uh, political views. Uh, May, uh, Alfred Thurman and others, uh, could be as racist, uh, as, uh, one could imagine. Uh, there are, in other words, significant, um, uh, problems, uh, uh, with, with many of the ideas that these people advocated. But it does seem to me that you can look back throughout our culture and throughout our history and, and, and develop some sense, uh, of what, uh, 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 America, uh the idea of American greatness might mean Um, i also think and uh, would argue that while um, it's certainly possible to see this strain of thought uh, that uh, the people who have stood for the principle of american greatness throughout much of our history have usually been on the defensive Uh, that there is a kind of default position uh, in american political culture which distrusts the idea of greatness Uh, and which upholds something else instead. Uh, So let me just suggest uh, that if we use these criteria of believing in articulating ideals of liberty and equality and wanting them to see them embodied in a nation through equal national citizenship, and then wanting, uh, or at least understanding, some sense of responsibility to sharing those values globally, uh, then you could probably develop a significant list of great American thinkers who did not endorse uh, those principles or who endorsed only one uh, or or one and a half and so on. Um, I would put on such a list of people who resisted these ideas of American greatness the following individuals, uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John C. Calhoun, Stephen A. Douglas, Henry David Thoreau, William Graham Sumner, William Jennings Bryan, Mark Twain, William James, Herbert Hoover, Robert Taft, and Hugo Black, a uh, significant p- number of people, all of whom were great Americans in many ways, but who did not necessarily believe in the idea of a great America as I've been trying to define it. Among contemporary writers and political activists, I would include Newt Gingrich, Antonine Scalia, Gore Vidal, Patrick Buchanan, and Ralph Nader uh, as people who uh, articulated values other than American greatness, Um, whatever those other things might be. In some cases, they were the Republican notion, small r, Republican notion of civic virtue. In some cases, they were loyalty to a section of the country rather than to the nation as a whole, or a loyalty to unspoiled nature, or to the voice of the people, or to economic freedom, or to states' rights, or to American isolation, or to civil liberty, or to a homogenous American culture, or to world peace. Uh, All of them perfectly admirable things, but something other than greatness as the first priority. On a list of those who I do think made greatness the first priority for America, I would include Alexander Hamilton, John Marshall, Daniel Webster, John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Charles Sumner, Walt Whitman, Frederick Douglass, Herbert Crowley, Jane Adams, Albert Beveridge, John Marshall Harlan, the two Roosevelts, Walter Ruther, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, and Henry Scoop Jackson, uh, people who I think did commit themselves to the principles uh, uh, or at least the definition uh, that I'm offering here. Or if we were to talk about contemporary Americans, I would include on such a list Arthur Schlesinger Jr., John McCain, Wesley Clark, Joseph Biden, Michael Ignatieff, Michael Walzer, and Diane Ravitch uh, as examples of people who embody these ideas. Now, for, I provide these lists because I'm trying to make a point. And that point is that this distinction uh, that I'm trying to draw here is one that has very little to do with the usual labels of conservative and liberal. There are conservatives and liberals on both sides uh, of the divide here. Um, it doesn't have uh, uh, much to do with... Uh, um, section i've had southerners and northerners on both sides uh of this um doesn't even have much to do with america and non-americans one of the people on my list of advocates for american greatness michael Ignatieff, is is canadian uh, but i do think that uh uh what we uh, what we do by trying to do this is to get at a distinction uh that i characterize uh, in uh, uh, this talk as uh, those who advocate a good America versus those who advocate for a great America. And I see this as a kind of almost fundamental fault line running throughout American political culture. Um, the good people, the people who think that America should be good rather than great, uh, tend to be typically united in a conviction that too strong a government too ambitious a domestic agenda or too overreaching a foreign policy will corrupt values that America has always held dear and that have made America exceptional. For believers in American goodness, power is not an end in itself, but a means to accomplish an ideal. As a means, moreover, political power is nearly always second best to be used only when people fail to achieve the good by their own efforts. Given a choice between being good and being great, America, from their perspective, is better off striving for the good. The enemy of the good is not some external force against which it is necessary to mobilize our strength, but temptations within ourselves, temptations within both individuals and the body politic, such as the all-too-human tendency to accommodate to the world as it actually is. To commit to goodness is to strive for perfection, and to accept the inevitable disappointment when it cannot be realized. Success, goodness, is therefore measured not by quantifiable things, such as military power, gross national product, or indicators of equality, but by the intensity and the purity of the efforts designed to achieve them. To be good, America and Americans must strive to be virtuous. They must cleanse themselves of sin before going out into the world, to spread the word, the good news, as evangelicals would put it, of their message. Believers in a good America typically feel that they're on the wrong side of history, but it is precisely their alienation from the way things are going that gives them clarity to their purpose and determination to their convictions. They need not necessarily be religious. Some of them are, in fact, atheists, but they share sincerity and authenticity, as qualities for which people and nations ought to stand. Now, it's not that people who believe in a great America prefer to be bad than to be good, but they do assign a lower priority to goodness, just as advocates of a good America assign a lower priority to greatness. The Great America camp or school believes that no idea, however noble in theory, means much unless sufficient political power is accumulated to realize it in practice, even if the process of making it happen results in compromises that leave the ideal less than complete. Yes, power corrupts, greatness advocates say, but impotence cripples. Impatient, results-oriented, practical sometimes to the point of cold-bloodedness, advocates of American greatness bend principle and sometimes law and custom to achieve their goals. Anticipating the relative lack of attention they pay to means will be forgotten when the benefits of their victories are recognized. Corruption is the enemy of goodness, but complacency is the enemy of greatness. Maturity, not perfection, is the achievement advocates for greatness seek. The United States, in their view, must overcome its sense of itself as a special or exceptional place in order to join the real world of nations responding to pressures from within and without. While always threatened from other nation-states that aspire to greatness in their own way, the biggest stumbling block to greatness, according to its advocates, lies in the American passion for goodness. Now, what I want to do uh, is contrast these two schools along a number of dimensions, but it's, uh, it's not dimensions that involve how they think about the specific political issues of the day, I think behind both those who speak about goodness for America as its primary objective and those who speak about greatness for America, behind each way of thinking lies a set of assumptions about some of the oldest philosophical and theological questions that human beings wrestle with. And I just want to identify a few of those kind of contrasting uh, uh, um, ideas. Certainly, notions about human nature underlie each of these different perspectives on the United States. For those who believe in goodness, human nature is generally viewed in negative terms. Uh, Human beings are seen as corrupted and corruptible. Um, Suspicion of humans and what they are up to runs like a leitmotif throughout the school of American goodness. Wariness, uh, always on guard. Uh, when she read through the literature of the Anti-Federalists, for example, Cecilia Kenyon listed all the different um, um, uh, passages from the writings of the Anti-Federalists that emphasized this kind of suspicion and wariness. Uh, references to, quote, the natural lust of power inherent in man, the predominant thirst of domination, which is invariably and uniformly prompted rulers to abuse their power, the ambition of man and his lust for domination. uh, These are the kinds of words that run throughout the writings uh, of the anti-federalists. Such 18th century language was quite familiar to 19th century clergymen. Uh, In a lecture called The Perils of Atheism, Lyman Beecher wrote about human beings as if they were what he called famished, infuriated animals, goaded by instinct, and unrestrained by protective hopes and fears. For people of this disposition, uh, the true theorist of the state of nature is neither John Locke nor Thomas Hobbes, but John Calvin. If a a capricious God is capable of doing little to transform the human propensity to sin, then government, in their view, could do even less. uh, in, In quite striking contrast, Uh, people who I identify as in the American Greatness Camp were actually somewhat optimists about human nature. It's true, for example, that James Madison in the Federalist Papers wrote the famous sentence in which he said, if all men were angels, no government would be necessary. But Madison, who was in his own way an ambivalent nation builder, went on to say the exact opposite just a few sentences later when he said, as there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumcision and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a portion of esteem and confidence. Hamilton uh, uh, was even more optimistic about human capacities. As he said when he addressed the New York State ratifying convention for the Constitution in 1788, he said, when you have divided and nicely balanced the departments of government, when you have strongly connected the virtue of our rulers with interest, when you have rendered your system as perfect as human forms can be, then you must give confidence. You must must place confidence. You must give power. I think probably the most optimistic reading of human nature associated with almost any American thinker was the one that could be found in Herbert Crowley's famous book, The Promise of American Life, which was written very much in the Hamiltonian, Rooseveltian tradition. Um, The word promise itself certainly stood out. Uh, In the book, Herbert Crowley wrote of Jefferson that Jefferson believed theoretically in human goodness, but in actual practice, his faith in human nature was exceedingly restricted. Uh, Crowley wanted to think of us as human beings as capable of great things and, therefore, uh, this notion of a crabbed and restricted view of human nature simply wouldn't work for him. Um, it's an interesting distinction, I think, that runs throughout um, uh, American political culture in which you really do see a divide uh, between two different ways of thinking about human beings and and what they're capable of. There's a second um, uh, notion, I think, that distinguishes the goodness school from the greatness school in American life. And that's how each of these uh, uh, two uh, uh, traditions thinks about rules and laws and, and, and systems um, in, uh, I think, very, very different fashion. For if human beings are inherently corrupt and sinful, and if the institutions they create are sufficiently imperfect that they warrant constant suspicion, then at the very least society requires some other mechanism for ensuring the maintenance of order therefore those who take a darker view of human nature often find reassurance in systems whether they're embodied in systematic theology constitutional texts literally applied economic theory or a complex utilitarian calculus through which instincts can be tamed and disobedience punished and goodness rewarded Certainly, America's greatest synthesizer, most systematic thinker, was John C. Calhoun, who invented an entire political theory and constitutional order designed to ensure that the national government would never develop sufficient authority to impose its will on the states. Far more than the Constitution itself, Calhoun's idea of concurrent majorities represented an effort to tame the passions through procedures, as if legal abstractions could be put in the place of real people. Say what you will about Calhoun's apologetics for slavery, he was at heart a man who stood on principle. As he wrote in a letter to Bowling Hall, his friend in 1831, he said, I would do anything for the Union except to surrender my principles. Later defenders of Calhoun's beloved South would share this intellectual sensibility. Uh, Whatever Andrew Johnson's strengths and weaknesses his biographer, Eric McKittrick, has written, he was no experimenter. In words that could apply exactly to Calhoun, McKittrick points out that, quote, the texture of Andrew Johnson's mind was essentially abstract. Concrete problems never had the power to engage his interests that principles had. Concrete problems never had the power to engage his interests that principles had. The principles of equal rights, local self rule, states' rights, and strict constitutionalism had served him well through all the vicissitudes and had taken on mystic powers with the passage of the years. I think it's a quote that gives a, a good picture of what I'm trying to get at by this idea of uh, adherence to systems and to systematic thinking. Consistently enough, I believe, 20th century defenders of states' rights, such as those associated with organizations, like the Federalist Society, manifest much the same uh, preference for strict fixed principles um, uh, and the application of strict fixed principles, even those formulated many, many years ago uh, to uh, the present time. Running throughout the minds of this way of thinking is the conviction that bad people, people who are power-hungry, ambitious, worldly, and corrupt, threaten the existence of a good society. And since the objective is to create a good society, the only way to do so is to prevent bad people from corrupting their society by establishing fixed and timeless rules through which or over which no human beings uh, can tamper. Now, an interesting contrast to this notion of systems and systematic theory is that the people who have advocated American greatness throughout our history have insisted that experience in real life, counts for much more than adherence to fixed principle. We do not need to fear opening ourselves up to experience, Alexander Hamilton believed, precisely because we need not fear human nature. As he wrote in Federalist Paper No. 76, he said, the supposition of universal venality in human nature is little less an error in political reasoning than the supposition of universal rectitude. The institution of delegated power implies that there is a portion of virtue and honor among mankind which may be a reasonable foundation of confidence, and experience justifies the theory. Hamilton would not have been familiar with a 20th century sociological term called the self-fulfilling prophecy, but this is essentially what he had in mind, that if you allow human beings to experience the world, then experience itself will be a guide for further experience of the world. The same uh, uh, attempt to allow one's openness to experience as opposed to adhering to systematic rules and laws certainly can help us characterize Abraham Lincoln, who in a sense had experience forced upon him. Lincoln, of course, was reverent toward the Constitution and the principles it established but he was not above bending the meaning of the Constitution as a way to save the nation. Indeed, some scholars, such as the legal scholar George Fletcher, claim that Lincoln essentially invented a second, or as Fletcher calls it, a secret Constitution that made national unity and not a set of flawed agreements hammered out in a previous century the basis of American law. And that may be an extreme interpretation of what happened to the United States during the Civil War But I think there's no doubt that Lincoln was quite aware of uh, Calhoun's preference for systematic theory, adherence to principle, and rejected it on the grounds that adherence to fixed principle in a Calhounian sense would have made it impossible for Lincoln to save the country. Uh, And in that sense, I think George Fletcher is correct that under Lincoln's leadership, as Fletcher writes, we abandoned the language of the late 18th century the language of the documents drafted in Philadelphia in 1776 and 1787, and began to think of ourselves as a nation with a distinct historical personality. Experimentation, as opposed to adherence to systematic following of rules, would certainly characterize the work of one of the great theorists in the American greatness tradition, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, who, of course, is famous uh, for his opening sentence to his book, The Common Law, when he said, the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience. Uh, we know from this wonderful book by Louis Manan, The Metaphysical Club, uh, of Holmes's relationship with the pragmatic philosophers of his day, and the whole tradition of American pragmatism and of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes's legal realism was one that distrusted absolutes, distrusted principles um, uh, distrusted systematic theory in favor of uh, a john dewey like emphasis upon uh, experience, learning from experience, and so on and so it 's no surprise I think to find that philosophers uh, that, that uh, 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 jurists influenced by this philosophical tradition would be on crucial places on the United States Supreme Court when it became necessary once again to repudiate fixed principles fixed and systematic theory in favor of that form of experimentation known as the New Deal, uh, which was uh, developed in response to the great economic emergency uh, that we faced uh, at that time. Again, then, like attitudes toward human nature, running throughout these different schools of thought is a very, very different idea about how human behavior should be guided. Goodness Human beings inherently corruptible, human nature out of control, the need for systematic laws uh, uh, to contain it. On the other side of the fence, the notion that human beings uh, are people in whom we should have confidence and therefore a willingness to go beyond a systematic theory for governing people and allow some sense of experimentation. I have another distinction, I think, that runs throughout the goodness and the greatness camp, and it has to do with, I hesitate to use this term, but I really can't think of any other, a a kind of artistic sensibility associated with each of them. Advocates of American goodness I've painted as hard-bitten and suspicious and abstract, so it's difficult to think of them as romantics. But in the atmosphere of the 19th century, their outlook on the world had a great deal in common with the romantic movements in literature and music and art. That there was a sense of purity, a sense of authenticity about them that was similarly motivating uh, 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 romantic spirits in other areas as well. For me, the representative American in this category would be Andrew Jackson, uh, whose Tennessee roots conveyed the kind of picaresque exploits of Daniel Boone, as well as the chivalric code of the South, whose military career seemed to demonstrate the purifying potential of violence and whose personal code of conduct gave pride of place to honor and loyalty. Andrew Jackson, I would characterize as the great romantic hero of American politics. As 19th century artists found their materials in popular legends and indigenous music, Andrew Jackson helped formulate and then came to symbolize America's first great folk tradition. His nationalism was a rebellion against aristocratic refinement and artificiality symbolized by the European court. It was never short on patriotism, but the folk community for which Andrew Jackson stood had little in common with ideas of American greatness. Great societies are cosmopolitan, polygot, multilingual, syncretic. They come far too close to the aristocratic societies that Romantics despise. Folk communities, by contrast, are pure, innocent, and homogeneous. Like empires, they do give pride of place to military valor, but more for the protection of honor than for the incorporation of the distant and the strange. Uh, Andrew Jackson's quasi russo esque vision of a good society has been well captured by his most recent biographer, Andrew Burstein, who writes that he had a conception of civilization that placed the idealized American people at a deliberately chosen place on nature's spectrum between opulent city dwellers uh, and the uncivilized, morally fit Indian barbarian, quote-unquote. I think the political scientist who best understands the romantic temperament in American political culture is Samuel P. Huntington, who writes about various periods of creedal passion in American life when Americans get totally preoccupied with moral crusades and with moral goodness and with moral refinement. Uh, and uh, uh, Huntington uh, uh, goes uh, in his book, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony, sees this as kind of a running uh, uh, theme throughout American culture. It's a culture of redemption, uh, 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 of purification, and so on. Now, standing in sharp contrast to the romantic vision of American purpose is what could be called the realistic version. Uh, realism has taken various forms, I've already mentioned Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is identified as one of the founders of a way of thinking about the law called legal realism. Realism is much more generally used, however, to describe a way of thinking about American foreign policy. And the realist, unlike the romantic, has almost no place for passion, moral indignation, and moral purity. For the realist, the world is the way it is. It is to be accepted at face value, Uh, as what it is uh, and and not uh, to be uh, thoroughly uh, upended with uh, a crusade for transforming it. Realists have had influence in American political culture, but it's interesting to me that there's something almost un-American about the realist tradition um, uh, in American life because we are, I think, so given to the other way of thinking, to uh, uh, to the romantic ideal. The three great realist thinkers in American political culture all have Germanic names, Morgenthau, Kissinger, and Niebuhr. Uh, two of the three were German-born. Niebuhr was the American-born one. Um, and uh, uh, this strikes me as uh, almost symbolic of the fact that the realist way of thinking about the world is somewhat alien to our general political culture. The one great non-German name that's often identified with realism in American life is a distinguished resident of your community, uh, George Frost Kennan. Um, But uh, uh, Ambassador Kennan also, in a sense, proves the point because his realism was so aristocratic, uh, so disdainful of ordinary people that it almost takes on a kind of un-American quality uh, uh, as well. Um, Now realism strikes me as very much associated with ideas of greatness that stand in sharp contrast to the romanticism that is also often linked to the pursuit of goodness. It might seem that realists would share a kind of pessimistic idea of human nature, but this is not actually the case. Niebuhr, for example, did not. Niebuhr was strongly influenced by St. Augustine, and St. Augustine's view about human nature were positive uh, for his time. Uh, 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 certainly emphasized sin uh, by all means, but still held out the capacity uh, for uh, something better uh, uh, for, for human beings. One final point of comparison, and then I will say a few things about where I began this lecture tonight. But a, a final point of comparison uh, uh, seems appropriate since I'm talking a little bit about American history, and that is history itself. Uh, history itself plays a very, very different role um, in uh, uh, the schools of thought that I've been trying to distinguish for you tonight. In 18, on March 28, 1834, uh, the United States Senate, led by Henry Clay, censured President Andrew Jackson based on Jackson's refusal to make available to Congress a paper that he had read to his cabinet. Three years later, uh, the Senate, came back under the control of the Democratic Party, and they voted to expunge its earlier censure of uh, the president. Uh, Behind this debate, uh, writes uh, the historian Daniel Walker Howe, stood two very, very different conceptions of the role that history should play in governing our affairs. And uh, Daniel uh, Walker Howe cites a July 1961 sermon of Horace Bushnell, who distinguished between what he called the abstract theoretical tradition in American life and the historical tradition. Attitudes toward history and the role that history should play, um, it it seems to me, uh, sharply divide these two schools of thought. Um, Leaders who aspire to greatness invariably pay homage to history, to what Abraham Lincoln called the mystic chains of memory. No better example, I think, is uh, offered than by Theodore Roosevelt, himself an amateur historian and writer of history, uh, also president of the American Historical Association. Um, uh, and uh, in various of the uh, uh, people that I see as embodying the tradition of American greatness, the same kind of sympathy and appreciation for history runs throughout. Uh, Roosevelt's cousin Franklin, uh, through the New Deal, uh, paid considerable attention to uh, Such projects as the oral histories of the Federal Writers Project, sponsored regional and local histories. John F. Kennedy, who frequently invoked ideas of American greatness, thought of himself as a historian as well, um, and of course wrote a best-selling book, it doesn't matter whether he actually wrote it or not, uh, um, um, that uh, told the history of those people who stood up against uh, uh, their own time profiles in courage. There's a sense that People who stand for the idea of greatness probably think a lot about history. They think about their role in history. Maybe they even think about whether they'll be on some monument such as Mount Rushmore someday, although I must say that um, uh, it'd be difficult to imagine in today's uh, superheated partisan environment any kind of national agreement uh, upon which presidents uh, should be on such a monument if we were to build it today. A disdain for history Uh, runs throughout the goodness camp, a sense that, as Henry Ford famously put it, history is bunk, Uh, a sense that the world begins anew with each new generation, a sense that uh, uh, history is going to lead us in the wrong direction if we really want to pursue the objective of making ourselves as good and as uh, as virtuous as as possible. Uh, And... um, 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 It seems to me that uh, perhaps we have in the white house now an example of someone for whom history is perhaps not one of the major uh, motivations of his presidency i just read this week in the new york times that the president said that the historians will judge 80 years from now or so whether he's been a success or not he's not going to worry about it Um, it was widely reported in his first term that uh, um, he didn't uh, himself read newspapers very much so it's hard to imagine him having the kind of passionate engagement with the history of his own country that some of our other uh, political leaders have had and so perhaps we have an example right now uh in the united states of a of a leader for whom uh history is not sim- is just is just not compelling it's just not something uh um uh that's uh, at the forefront of his mind when he makes the uh decisions that he makes well by bringing in mr bush i guess uh, um I have to uh uh make some kind of statement about where he stands in the goodness greatness uh, uh distinction. Um hard to use the word goodness, I think, uh, in talking about uh, Mr. Bush. Um but uh nonetheless it seems to me that at least on many of the uh, uh characteristics that I tried to identify, it would be pretty clear uh to me at least uh that while some of the President's actions seem to have about them an aspiration to greatness. And I certainly think that the people I began with tonight, William Crystal and David Brooks, would see uh, Mr. Bush as embodying that, those principles In, for example, the language he uses uh, to promote freedom around the world, uh, the justification for the war in Iraq, and so on. Uh, um, but from where I sit, any attempt to put the current president in the same tradition as Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, John Marshall, uh, um, and, and so on just makes very, very little sense. Um, suspicion of human nature uh, certainly seems to be a prominent feature uh, of the uh, current administration. I would not exactly call them optimists uh, about uh, um, human capacity, certainly not the vice president, uh, who probably has one of the darkest visions about human beings of any leader in the entire history of the United States and for whom uh, uh, um, uh, the world seems to be populated by sinister forces at every level. Um, And uh, if there's a kind of sense of uh, confidence uh, and sense of capacity there, uh, a Hamiltonian sense, uh, I I haven't really seen it uh, emerge. Uh, Systematic application of rules, well, we have a uh, very, very strong commitment to laissez-faire, at least in theory. It's not really a laissez-faire administration in practice, but in theory, a strong commitment, a strong commitment to the idea of appointing federal judges who will, as the president says, not interpret the law, but simply enforce the law as if the Constitution already embodies a very, very systematic set of ideas that don't need uh, any kind of bending or any kind of uh, experimentation. Romantic. Um, I actually think it applies uh, to the Secretary of Defense in particular. Uh, the last great uh, romantic hero of American politics may well prove to be Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who uh, uh, seems to believe that he can wave his hand and all kinds of magical things will happen in the world um, uh, and that the purity and goodness of our efforts is all that really matters. Um, uh, it's certainly, well, maybe romantic as a stretch, but I would be hard-pressed to call this an administration given over to realism in its conduct of foreign policy. Uh, if anything, it's a kind of blend of missionary, uh, evangelism for democracy and, uh, as I think we see with the war in Iraq, uh, the, just a, a, a disregard for the actual details of what the use of troops and fighting actually implies that suggests that there are no realists. Uh, in this administration. Um, uh, Not realists, as the term is understood. Of the various realists I talked about, um, uh, only one is still alive, Mr. Kissinger, uh, but uh, he's not generally credible uh, when it comes to judging um, uh, and evaluating uh, any administration that might have a role for him uh, to play in it at any point. And so I think we can safely disregard what he says. But if Niebuhr were alive today, I cannot imagine Uh, that we would have a a sharper and more effective criticism uh, of the administration's lack of of realism. Um, So uh, uh, it it pains me uh, uh, to use a word like goodness uh, to apply to the present administration, but I do think the term uh, fits. Um, Something I don't really understand, I have to say, uh, as I look back over the kinds of um, ideas that I've been trying to share with you uh, this evening. It strikes me that so many of the uh, people that I've been talking about, uh, people like Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Donald Roosevelt, were not, I I think they believed in ideas of American greatness, but they were themselves not great leaders until opportunities presented themselves for leadership. Uh, Lincoln was viewed as a backwater politician of limited abilities who never had anything like a majority vote in the election that brought him to the presidency, and Franklin Donald Roosevelt uh, was generally thought of as something of a playboy and not a very, very serious person at all. But crises, the Civil War, the Great Depression, brought out the best in these people and enabled them uh, to move substantially in the direction of putting into effect the notion of American greatness. September 11th could easily have been such an opportunity for us in these days and for our, our president. Uh, Bush was probably, before September 11th, uh, in the same position, roughly that Lincoln and FDR were before the crises that hit them. Uh, Our politics before September 11th were pretty much deadlocked as they seem to be now. Uh, The 2000 election, of course, had taken place and it left the country in pretty bad shape. Um, The uh, collapse of the Soviet Union had ended the Cold War. Uh, and brought up the threat of new kinds of actors in the world, of uh, stateless uh, terrorists. Um, Perhaps he wasn't uh, 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 the the most intellectually capable of presidents facing these events. Uh, But I do think there was a lot going for President Bush in the aftermath of September 11th that could have provided him, uh, had he known more about American greatness and what it requires, could have provided him to have developed a set of ideas uh, and the capacity to realize those ideas that would have effectively brought an end to many of the divisions in the United States. His background as a member of a prominent New England family with a long tradition of guardianship for the country certainly would have given him an advantage in that regard, Um, an ideal uh, and a perfect position to exercise this kind of leadership. He didn't, of course, do it. Instead, he decided to not only divide Americans from each other, but to divide America from uh, the rest of the world. And the predictable outcome was that we are still locked in a deeply partisan uh, ideological divide. Uh, we settled the question of who's going to be president for the next four years. I don't know too many people uh, that are proud of the electoral campaign that we just had. I know people on the other side of the political spectrum for me that are happy that Mr. Bush won reelection, but I don't know anyone that's really proud of the way he did it um, and feels that the country exhibited its very best moments in this recent election, that somehow we embodied something great as we chose our candidate for president. Uh, you can like him or you can not like him. Uh, but it would be very, very hard for me to uphold this election as a model, as, as an inspiration for the way a great society conducts uh, its business. So I think, in a sense, uh, we have learned something from 2004. Uh, often there are obstacles put in the path of achieving American greatness, and it's very, very hard to remove those obstacles. With George W. Bush, we see something quite different. There were no obstacles in his path. He had the opportunity. Instead, he's used his presidency to place obstacles in the path of greatness, uh, um, which shows, I guess, a kind of leadership. I guess you could call that leadership. But it strikes me that it's a leadership of which John Marshall, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt would not be particularly proud. Thank you.
1: been instructed to assist, to assist Alan in a way that he may not need assistance by uh, calling on folks for questions, but he's uh, happy to take questions for 15 or 20 minutes. We'll use mics. Is that uh, okay? Yes.
0: In regard to greatness as being uh, connected to power, would you give a little... Um, Idea of how you feel about, say, Napoleon or Hitler and where they would fit in this spectrum?
2: Well, I, I did talk about equality and liberty. I don't think uh, Hitler um, made those particularly high priorities. So, I, I, you know, power in itself can't make you great unless there's a great idea behind it. Um, and um, um, we do have in our tradition great ideas. Um, those are absolutely essential. I mean, if, 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 um, if, 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 for example, I talked a lot about realists. If you're just a realist, but there's no idea behind the realism that you're trying to embody, it will become a kind of pure power politics and won't, I think, embody some. It'll just be chessboard, uh, uh, just be moves on a chessboard. There has to be some great idea there, and I think the... Ideas of our founders are great ideas, and I miss them right now. I have to say, uh, as I look at American politics, but certainly a Hitler wouldn't, uh, wouldn't embody them.
0: Napoleon? Napoleon?
2: Um, I know more about Hitler than I do about Napoleon. <laughs> um, I would think probably the same thing. <laughs> I'd give the same answer. <clears throat>
3: Two other names, uh, Ronald Reagan and Winston
2: Churchill? Well, I was just talking about Americans, and Winston Churchill had an American mom, but that doesn't uh, probably count. Um, Well, Churchill, though, you know, I think Churchill's kind of everybody's model um, when they talk about this kind of thing, uh, uh, just because, uh, like I was saying at the end, he had his... uh, um, uh, the opportunity, and he just rose to the opportunity. Uh, like Lincoln, his his rhetoric is just absolutely magnificent, uh, blood, sweat, and tears and all that. I mean, it's just astonishingly powerful. Um, and there are, I mean, there are those kinds of skills that I think have to go into. Um, and I, I, don't, I didn't want to talk that much about specific techniques like rhetoric because there are techniques, and there has to be something behind it, but it, it probably is essential. He also had a... Um, he represented to some degree. I mean, he changed his position so many times throughout the course of his life, but usually running throughout Churchill's career is a kind of one Britain idea that uh, the, the aristocracy often embodied, and I think that's essential, too, uh, as well. Reagan is, uh, I do not um, I, I, I do not think of Reagan as either a great president or as an embodiment of great America. I'm just a real dissenter on Reagan. I, 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 you know, there is this, especially after his death, this, almost romanticization of Reagan, um, and all these people are telling us about his magnificent presidency and how he won the Cold War and so on. I, I, I haven't bought it. I, I think, you know, I've been moved by, they published some of his letters, and I, you know, I, I think I've been probably unfair to him throughout the course of my life. I think he was probably a more thoughtful and intelligent man than I probably gave him credit for in a lot of my French probably gave him credit for. Uh, he also looks pretty good in comparison to the present guy. I never thought I'd ever say that, but, you know, I have a feeling someday that we're going to look back and say George W. Bush was one of the more moderate politicians that the Republican Party. I mean, look at the guy from Oklahoma uh, uh, or the, uh, yeah, what's the other state? Uh, we, I knew, oh, Kentucky. Look at the news. Well, he's not a news singer. Uh So you never know. But, you know, I, I still... Um, um, have trouble uh, coming around to the idea uh, that Reagan um, was uh, uh, someone with a, uh, an actual concrete vision for what would, what, what would make America great. It just seems to me too much part of the romantic, he's too much the romantic uh, to, to really be in this category.
0: <clears throat> yes, Sylvia. <so>, <clears throat>
2: Stepping away from the um, current current events for a moment and going back to your definitions of goodness and greatness,
1: the picture you painted as you contrasted them was of two basically, they seem to be pretty incompatible uh, concepts. Um, To what extent do you think in a civil society uh, the two can be synthesized or coexist?
2: I think that's a good question, and I I do think um, there are um examples that i've uh, uh totally skipped over of people who embody them both simultaneously uh the most prominent would probably be Woodrow Wilson uh who you you notice i never mentioned because he doesn't fit my categories uh woodrow wilson uh a uh, r- religious presbyterian uh president of this uh, place um and uh, uh very much in the goodness sense but also president during a war um, using the powers of the war very much in the greatness. Uh, so Wilson strikes me as someone who really um, uh, uh, tried to embody both, but then Wilson's tragedy may be that he was pulled apart by the competing tensions between them. Um, I talked about Niebuhr, and Niebuhr also embodies both. Uh, Niebuhr was both a realist, but he also um, was enough of a Christian, uh, more than enough of a Christian, uh, to understand uh, that um, goodness has to be part of the world as well as greatness. And so I see Niebuhr as wrestling uh, with these things. Uh, Other examples, uh, Felix Frankfurter and Louis Brandeis, both progressives uh, but very afraid of big government. Um, uh, so Brandeis with his ideas of reform, but then distrusting the great institutions that would bring those reforms into existence very, very ambivalent. Frankfurter as well, very, very ambivalent on these things. So I, I think there are, are plenty of examples of people who either try to embody both or can't embody either, and so on.
1: I just want to follow up. Um, it does seem to me that these two tendencies are, are going to be a little rough, that, uh, mm-hmm. that the national greatness camp might represent not a confidence in human nature, but Worries about human mm-hmm. nature, but a feeling that if you sort of liberate through national mm-hmm. institutions the desire for commercial gain, mm-hmm. uh, Hamiltonian story, that we can have a stable, very prosperous, powerful country, but one that, as you said, builds on <coughs> solid, low foundations of self-interest. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly confidence yeah. in human virtue, but the orderliness mm-hmm. and, uh, and power of, of sort of a commercial republic, which is not especially virtuous, but which is powerful. But I would have thought that the punchline of your story of drawing these contrasts would be of trying to put the two together, you know, sort of systematically. And mm. I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Tocqueville, in a way, your, your great predecessor who argued <laughs> That's that all. Alright, I, I can go uh, now. <laughs> that, uh, that, 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 that while a great strength of America is this commitment to freedom and equality for all, An essential foundation of that is the preservation of local institutions, of civil society, which you've written on, that essential citizen virtues come out of the the continued health of local institutions, even while the overarching values are those of a national republic. But the essential sort of reminder of Tocqueville is not to allow those national values of, of individual commerce, individual freedom to overwhelm and displace a continued commitment to localism, local institutions, and the virtues that are supported. By that other, what looks like the other strain. Mm-hmm. So, so co- the combination would look like the formula for national health.
2: You're right, except uh, uh, this uh, lecture and the book that will come out as a result is, is kind of my own sort of personal reaction to September 11th, uh, uh, which, you know, my, my sort of brief answer to your question would be civil society can't protect us against terrorism. Um, and uh, September 11th, for me, had the impact of suggesting that nation-states are really important, uh, uh, that defense is really important, uh, that uh, this very, very uncertain world that we face requires um, probably a different way of thinking. And so I think if, if it hadn't happened, or maybe in the future, you're absolutely right. The trick really will be to combine them in some way, but I think right now, um, I just feel so much the, the need. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we are thought of by our enemies as great. Uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini called us the great Satan. He got half of it right. Um, we are great, and that's it. We don't think of ourselves as great, but our enemies think of us as great. And um, that, that strikes me as really odd in a, in a certain kind of way. But I, so I, you know, for now, for, for at this moment, um, Like, for example, just, you know, another person I didn't talk about at all tonight, I find really, really fascinating, is Gary Hart, who both chaired a national commission on terror which foreshadowed um, in remarkable detail the the attack that would eventually happen. He has also written a book about the Republican tradition and localism, and Gary Hart really does try to bring those two things together, and he fails completely, I think. Marie, how about Marie?
0: Marie, go ahead. Um, I wanna talk to Alan Wolf, the sociologist in all of this because um, as Professor Macedo noted, you've taught us to think not in terms of culture wars and great divides at the level of the people, Mm And then um, presenting here a kind of uh, very credible, very powerful, and provocative divide at the level of political theory. But I'm wondering, are you wanting to translate this into terms of the people? What people are drawn to? Are people drawn to goodness or greatness, or are things muddier? You know, at the at the at this level, and are you trying to? Would you want to explain the election results on these grounds as well?
2: Well, it, it's a, it is a slightly different shift. Uh, you know, I've sort of done a trilogy of books now exploring uh, attitudes of Americans um, based on lots of conversations with ordinary Americans and so on. Uh, this is a different kind of thing. I mean, this is an attempt to talk about what leadership would uh, uh, would require. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, I think my bottom line position on on the election and on the culture wars and all that, um, is that I've learned uh, from watching Mr. Bush uh, the tremendous importance of of leadership. Uh, I do think, to this day, I still retain the optimism of One Nation After All and uh, other books I've written that suggest that Americans are not that divided. But I also think that um, if we get leadership that wants to bring out what's best in us, we will be less divided, and if we get leadership that wants to divide us, we will be more divided. Um, and um, while it's true we live in a democracy, leadership is absolutely essential to that. Um, and so I think it's important to think about what would what would good leaders be like. I, I think it's important not to be afraid of leadership, um, and to avoid a certain kind of populism that just says, well, trust in the wisdom of the good folks out there. Uh, running throughout my talk, I think, is the idea that if, if things are left to themselves, people will choose goodness over greatness. It, it fits sort of America's image of themselves as exceptional and innocent. It's cheaper. Uh, it doesn't require as active a government. It doesn't require that you disturb the good Tocquevillian features of your life. But if it can't protect you in the world, then maybe um, there has to be a resistance to that. Uh, default position for goodness, and that's where I see the uh, these ideas, if they have any value, as trying to urge a certain kind of leader to take some of these things seriously. Like, if a particular person had won the election, <laughs> um, but he didn't uh, win, and uh, does that answer your question? Yes. yes okay. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: um, following along that line, don't you think that fear? also contributes to how people select um, the political leaders for greatness or goodness?
2: Yes. Um, go in, go on at length about that. Uh, but, you know, I certainly um, it's been, uh, when you, if you look back, I mean um, sometimes you get, I mean, someone mentioned Reagan who uh, held out images of hope in the city on a hill kind of thing. And I mean, we've, we've had leaders who have appealed to people's sense of hope, uh, but so much of our politics is driven by appeals to fear instead, and not just Mr. Bush, who I think certainly ran a campaign very much premised on the idea that fear has political benefits, uh, but others as well, Nixon and uh, so on. Um, fear really does work, um, and um, it has... Um, um, I wish it didn't work so well. I, uh, before the ele- I'm spending, I'm actually visiting the United States right now, I'm spending the, ele- uh, the whole semester in Berlin this year. And we had a forum on uh, the election just before. And one of the people who spoke uh, was uh, probably America's leading expert on the effects of advertising. A very hard-nosed political scientist, you know, counts the numbers and does all these things. He's at the University of Wisconsin and he was visiting Germany. And this was before the election, and he said, negative advertising always works. There has never been exception. You think it's going to be different this time. It always works. And I get up and said, with all due respect to my colleague, I think this election is going to be different. People are not going to respond. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> he was right. Negative advertising always works. Fear just seems to tap into something in American political culture that uh, just, you know, it just always works. That's all I can say. <clears throat> you got somebody
0: uh, over here, yeah.
1: this
3: Gentleman. I guess what, what was missing from your categorization was everyone seemed to be truly committed to liberty and equality mm-hmm. and to these moral ideals. Some wanted to embody them, some wanted to promote them by almost any means necessary, but everyone was committed to them, whether good or great. And I'm wondering, what about the bad people? Um, what about the Nixons and the Karl Roves and the, even the H.L. Menkins, the sort of cynical tradition in American politics and political thought? Um, aren't, isn't there more in common between the good and the great in their commitments to moral ideals that separates them from the cynics and the manipulators uh, than there is that divides them? And the people you have trouble categorizing, some of them, seem to be the great moral heroes and some of them seem to be the great moral villains because once you have a strong enough commitment to an ideal, you'll want to embody it and promote it. And once you don't care about ideals at all, it would seem, mm-hmm. you know, you've gone well below good and great and you're bad and ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, good point, but not
2: everyone I talked about was committed to and equality. John C. Calhoun. Um, certainly wasn't committed to equality between the races.
3: But as he understood those ideals.
2: um, That's not good enough for me. I mean, he was not committed to equality between the races. I think it's just a flat-out fact. He may have understood it differently. He certainly thought he was committed to virtue, and uh, he believed that the South was not only a good society but the best society ever invented by human beings and so on. But... uh, um, but he wasn't cynical like a Mencken, for example. A Mencken would be a good example of someone um, uh, who, you know, I, I would be the first to acknowledge, doesn't fit into any of my category, He just, you know, would reject. Uh, um, and then, of course, there are people that reject categories completely. Uh, but Jacques Derrida was an American, so I don't have to put him in here. Uh, but, no, I think, you know, I think it's a good point. Uh, Mencken really is an outlier, though, in a, in a certain
1: One more. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm looking for a bit of hope for the future. So, perhaps you can say, tell us,
2: in your one in our country today, that does in fact have potential for greatness. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, I, and that's, I, I'm not so much a person, but I, I you know, it's, well, how long has it been since the election? A week? Uh, so, the, you know, I don't know what the seven stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are and so on. I, I don't know which stage I'm in uh, at the moment, but I think um, I'm, I'm getting more a little more optimistic in the sense that, um, you know, people are talking about values and the role that values played or moral ideas played in this election and so on, and uh, that a lot of people voted for the president based upon his moral convictions. Um, I, I don't see why it should be so difficult um, for someone, probably a Democrat, given the current composition of the parties, um, to make a strong case for American values—values values that go back to Jefferson and go back to the Enlightenment and go back to um, our, our traditions of equality. Uh, you know, liberalism is such a, a dirty word in American politics. For me, liberalism is the greatest political philosophy uh, ever created. Uh, by the mind of human beings and that it has such powerful ideas not necessarily the liberalism that's caricatured you know but the liberalism of tolerance the liberalism of individualism the liberalism of uh, liberty and equality as I've been trying to describe it and I, I know it sounds very, very abstract but it doesn't seem to me that hard given our history for someone to put together and make a powerful case for those ideals and then to contrast that with the case the Republican Party is presently making and have that old-fashioned liberal sense just be the much more powerful vision. Uh, To me, if if it could be articulated in the right way, its it's convictions are just so much more compelling uh, than the image of human beings that's conveyed in the junior senator from Oklahoma um, uh, or in the uh, Tom DeLay and and in other people who are furnishing the energy for the Republican Party uh, at the present time. So I I think in that sense, if you go back over the whole sweep of the history of our country, it really has been a great country, and it really has stood for great things. We're not at a great moment right now, uh, I don't think. Uh, But I I do think that there is a tradition here uh, um, that can be mobilized, and maybe that's the source of hope.
1: We'll gather again tomorrow, same time, same place, for part two. But in the meantime, (laughs) let us have a cheer for liberalism and (laughs) political Thank
2: you.